you know, I love, love Colorado because because we are the poster child, and and I get so much, for lack of a better word, street cred around the globe from <laughs> from cultivating here and being from Colorado, right? This is Lit and Lucid, your after work de stress smoke sesh podcast. I'm your host Lit, and I'm your host Lucid, and we're going to take you on a journey. A journey to discover the truth and find the balance. Every week, we get deep on those thought-provoking topics that ooze out of the cannabis universe. But we also keep it real by illuminating important issues and people in today's culture. So kick back, consume your favorite cannabis products, and get cozy cozy in the the lit and lucid lifestyle. Welcome, everybody, to the Lit and Lucid podcast. It is Thursday, and you know we are recording another episode of the show. Joining us today is Lucas Targos, VP of Controlled Environment Agriculture at Urban Grow, Inc. Urban Grow specializes in fully integrated facility design, cultivation systems integration, and operational support for cannabis and food-focused indoor-controlled environmental agriculture. They have completed over 500 indoor builds, encompassing over 11.5 million square feet of cultivation since 2014. With a home base in Lafayette, Colorado, we're super excited to have Lucas on the Homegrown series today to tell us a little bit more about Urban Grow and the services they offer to the cannabis industry. With that, welcome, Lucas. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to the conversation. Absolutely. You know, we appreciate you being on the show, Lucas. And, uh, you know, we started the season having a cultivator on the show and it's always fun to talk to the cultivators, but I don't think we've ever had somebody on the show to talk about cultivation build out. So, uh, something new and I'm sure, you know, a lot, a lot of little tidbits we're all going to learn today. So, uh, you know, looking forward to that, but before we get too far into urban grow, uh, let's learn more about you, Lucas. You know, you have a background in crop and cultivation management. Uh, you know, tell us how this knowledge base led you to cannabis. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's a bit of an interesting story. Um, I'm I'm a pseudo Colorado native. I, I my parents moved moved me here when I was about three years old. So I grew up on the western slope in um, Crested Butte, Colorado, a small little skiing town. Um, and I was lucky enough to go down to college in Durango at Fort Lewis College, and um, I got a degree there in environmental studies. And um, luckily, when I was there, I kind of fell in love with horticulture. My my degree really focused on sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, and uh, that kind of parlayed me into working on some farms and, and growing um, growing vegetables, actually. And so um, that actually ended up taking me all the way out to central New York, where uh-huh. I was uh, working on the vegetable operation. It was actually a whole diet farm. So we actually did everything from vegetables to raw milk and chickens and just about anything your heart could desire from a farm. <laughs> um, at that point, um, I actually headed back to um colorado um i wanted to get more into uh, let's say more of a professional uh role in the horticulture industry um it was a it was definitely a financially backed decision it was a bit difficult just to make a living uh growing vegetables um in the industry at that time and so i I came back to colorado and moved to denver where my parents had relocated to um and just kind of bounced around for for about six months i worked at a butcher shop and a couple restaurants and um Oddly enough, I kind of got swindled into coming into the cannabis industry. I really had no <laughs> intentions. Um, I, I took a job posting off of the horticulture jobs website. Um, it was very cryptic. They didn't mention anything about cannabis, just five years of commercial farming experience and um, mechanical and carpentry experience. And I showed up, uh, long story short, to a warehouse um, 
down on South Santa Fe in, in Denver and it was a weed operation. And, um, I kind of, yeah, I kind of <laughs> sat in my car for a good 20 minutes deciding if I should go in there or not. And, uh, lo and behold, I did. Um, and it was a great opportunity. It was a, a small facility. It's called legal, um, yeah. down in, yeah, yeah. Down right there at like uh, six in Santa Fe. Um, mm-hmm. great operation. I ended up running there for about, about two years. Um, and then Urban Grow came and picked me up. Um, that's when Urban Grow was really just kind of breaking out of um, who they were defining themselves in this industry. Or at that point, they were really just a lighting distributor. And um, they came knocking on my door and asked me if I wanted to travel around the world and help people build out um, massive facilities. And um, I kind of jumped at the opportunity and, and was the fifth employee. And here we are today, six and a half years late. Holy cow. Oh, that's, that's so cool. It's a wonderful story, really, yeah. and, and a great kind of transition. And I know and you, we can kind of pull a lot of that as, you know, some of these questions come up because it sounds like you have a lot of experience that kind of lends well to cannabis. You know, I like the regenerative ag portion of this and just understanding, you know, growing vegetables is tough and, you know, the plight of the farmer. And I think, you know, a lot of it still leads into cannabis cultivation today. It's still a very, you know, resource intensive operation to, to grow cannabis. And it's, it's no different than a lot of other crops out there. Um, and then the other little tidbit, I'll just say, you know, Crested Butte's a beautiful place. If you're listening and you haven't been to Crested Butte yet, you got to go. Lucy and I, I think it was last year was our first time we went oh, yeah, to Crested yeah. Butte mm-hmm. for Lucy's birthday and completely blown away. Like, love the place, honestly. It's a nice little hidden gem. So, uh, you know, you're very lucky to kind of grow up in that area. And it sounds like uh, you've got to see a lot of the finer sides of Colorado. And that's fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. To say the least. (laughs) Well, I thought another funny part about your story was you said, you know, you left, you know, regular agriculture to come back home and it was more of a financial decision and you found yourself in cannabis. And like, how ironic was that? You know, like who would have ever thought that you could make a living in cannabis or, you know, you never really realized you would be there in your journey. But I think that's cool. It kind of shows you like, this is what our homegrown series is about, right? Like we, everything got started here in Colorado and it's flourished across the United States and people can really make a living doing this kind of work. So I think that's very cool. Um, I also like that other little tidbit that you worked with legal. I mean, talking about clean cannabis and your background in like sustainable agriculture, I'm sure that was a perfect fit. Absolutely. So yeah, so it was. So John and Amy are were, were amazing. Um, those are the, that's the owners of Legal. For those of you that don't know, um, and and they really they really spoke to my values and my kind of my morals, especially around the production of crops. Um, and so it was a really good fit for me to to meet with those guys. You know, it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying, you know, earlier too, in terms of kind of how we get to places. And I, to, at risk of sounding too cliche, you know, Steve Jobs has a wonderful quote of you know, you cannot, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. Right. <laughs> and it's really interesting how the universe tends to unfold as it should. Right. And with, you know, at that point in 2014, there's probably hundreds of, you know, maybe not hundreds, but but close to it of cultivation facilities in, in Colorado. And the fact that I landed at, uh, at legal was, was, was pretty un- unbelievable. And it, it was, it was a great, great fit. Yeah. Legal is like top notch. So like that was one of the best. So you definitely started in a good spot and now you're at Urban Grow. So tell us a little bit more about Urban Grow and what they offer. Absolutely. So yeah, so really interesting story with Urban Grow. Like I said, I was, um, you know, kind of a, how do I want to say a a ground floor, a lifer here at Urban Grow. So um, about the fifth employee um, at that point, we started as a lighting distributor. Um, They actually had a sister company, the founders did, that was just commercial lighting. Um, obviously being in, in Colorado and Denver in the Denver metro area, they, um, 
you know, saw the opportunity with, with commercial lighting in uh, the horticulture industry with cannabis industry booming. Um, and that, that, that started around um, like 2014. Um, the, the deal cycle for that is, a bit, you know, it's a bit long. Right. And, and I think the founders, especially with their other sister companies were, were fine with that. The difference was, was that they had a lot of intrigue um, and push from the client side to, to provide more. They had a really good relationship with their clients and the people they were working with around North America. And they were asking them to provide more within systems and, and equipment to the space. And so that's when, that's when they kind of branched out and said, okay, well, let's, let's go see what we can, um, you know, what else we can do. And that's when we really started what was referred to back then as the cultivation technology division. And that's when they um, started reaching out to you know, people from the horticulture world, like myself, um, to develop um, our our integrated cultivation design, which is really you know the the, the design of uh, irrigation fertigation systems, the lighting systems, the building control systems, um, you know really all of the support systems that's required for the cultivation facilities. Um, kind of in tow that came with that was that we also needed to supply that equipment and then commission that equipment and support it post post commissioning. Um, so we started to build out commissioning teams and. And, um, and and kind of building our brand of, of these, this cultivation technology company that can build out and be a system integrator for all these cultivators across North America. Now, fast forward today to today, and really what we've kind of evolved into um, is really this this the first I want I would say only really architect led design build firm uh, that really serves the controlled environment ag space. Uh, we really focus on indoor cultivation or crop agnostic and um as we'll we'll speak about i'm sure a bit later but we've really closed that loop with some of the acquisitions we've made and um over the last couple of years in, in terms of bringing people onto our teams and divisions that we can provide uh, to our clients that's pretty incredible and you know that kind of follows the mold of a lot of the individuals we've had on the show so far, you know, we just, uh, I think the second episode of the season so far was a company called Work that provides payroll solutions. And and I feel like they took a similar route to Urban Grow of, you know, you guys started in an area and you guys were serving a need, but then the cannabis industry came back and they're like, you know, we need help with all this other stuff. And then essentially Urban Grow had to evolve with the cannabis industry to, to be kind of this one-stop shop kind of provider for all these different pieces. Because I'm sure, you know, a lot of cultivators back in 2014, I don't think they could just go down the street to you know, an, another company or somebody who had been, you know, necessarily, uh, you know, involved with, you know, large scale greenhouses or indoor production facilities for t- tomatoes or something. Um, it, you know, cannabis is probably a turnoff for some of those, you know, legacy companies. And so I could see how Urban Grow probably had to had to fill a, a big, you know, hole in the industry of being a, a solution provider. But then it uh, sounds like also what you're talking about is a lot of these systems are integrated. And so instead of having kind of a a patchwork of systems kind of trying to work together. Sounds like you guys uh, tackle this head on, you know, before you even start building it, you design it. So these systems kind of speak and function together. Is that correct? Yeah, so absolutely. And it's, and it's really well put. I mean, that was absolutely the case back in 2014. And I would say, you know, for, for all the way up till almost 2017 or so. And, and, you know, I can even relate to it at legal, you know, our, our contractor, we called him Go Depot. Like as in Home Depot, because he was he was a great contractor, but he he operated out of Home Depot, right? And um, he, you know, it's just that was kind of the the nature of the beast back then, and there was not any commercial uh, providers at that point um, or suppliers. It was it was either grow stores or or going to Joe Depots, right? And um, so so I got to learn a lot of that um, firsthand. But uh, you know, I would say that 
a lot of it does come down to the complexity of these systems. And, and that's where there's definitely a, a difference with, you know, general horticulture food production in terms of margins and the value of the crop. Right. And so these systems become, you know, they're just as complex, but they're, they're, they're so much more critical um, just due to the value of the crop and kind of what's at stake, especially, especially as we, you know, the, the CapEx cost that comes, comes with, you know, starting these facilities. So that is, that is really our foundation is as in an, an integrator of, of all these systems and being experts in them and agnostic across them so that we can find the best solution for our clients. Interesting. So in your role as, you know, the VP of Controlled Environment and Agriculture, as well as, you know, your background in sustainable agriculture and things like that, that you learned at Durango, are you using these skill sets to create like innovative designs at Urban Grow or what specifically do you do? Yeah, so absolutely. It's a great question. So I am really lucky to to come from, you know, a food production background. And, you know, uh, it, it's interesting. You learn a lot when you cut your teeth in, in, in a low margin, low value crop industry like that. And really what it comes down to is is the inputs and outputs, right? And, and what your cost of production is and, and efficiencies and, and labor demand. And and so I think, you know, what Urban Grow has done really, really well um, is it's kind of been that liaison between the legacy market that is absolutely critical to where we are in the industry today and bringing that to a, um, a sustainable, scalable, uh, you know, industry um, that we can kind of build upon, right? Because it, it's emerging. There's a lot of, you know, we're kind of learning as we're, we're building the plane. And, and it's what, what our job is, um, is really to kind of take that vision, take that harmony and put it down on paper and make it realistic and feasible. Um, and so what we really do is we focus on not dictating what the best practices are, but what the best way is to achieve the vision of our clients, right? Um, I think there's still a lot that we need to work out within the industry, but what Urban Grow does is that, we really focus on the number side of things. Okay, if this is the way you want to cultivate in order to do that, you know, at this 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 cost per per gram or or at this production rate of grams per canopy square foot, you know, we're going to need you to do X, Y, and Z, and here's why, right? Um, so there's a lot of numbers and logic that are based behind, you know, what we uh, what we what we propose for uh, the systems or the workflow of the facility, and so. You know, for myself now, what I've I've actually transitioned more into is in our cult, what we refer to as cultivation space programming. So that's really the first step of laying out these facilities. We do everything from, you know, dictating how many flower rooms, uh, all the scheduling and sequencing, so growth stage durations, harvesting events, even down to, you know, how you're trimming and even plant densities, right? So looking at, you know, okay, we're going to be growing at, you know, two point five square foot per plant and flower, you know, we'll be growing at, uh, you know, square one square foot per plant in our late veg stage, right? And then having overstock, dictating all the overstock numbers in terms of plant count that go throughout the growth stages. So we have the best and the brightest to move into our flower rooms and drive that efficiency, um, mitigate that risk as much as we can, and then really, you know, focus on things like cross-contamination and compliance and things like that. So that's really what, really what I focus on now. Um, as well as kind of emerging into our expansion into the European market. That is like beyond interesting. I didn't realize you guys were like that hands-on with everything. And now I'm kind of envisioning it like, you know, the European market for sure. And especially these East Coast companies that are coming online now, they don't really have to sit and like put a pen to paper a lot themselves. They can almost just call you guys and say, you know, I have like a 3,600 plant count. I want to grow this type of way. And then you guys kind of take it from there and help kind of put the facility together. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great way to look at it. I mean, that's that's really what we're there to do. And keep in mind, too, that it's it's a great deal of collaboration, right? Urban Grow is here to 
to do the nitty gritty, like the not as romantic work, um, but that's in heavy, heavy collaboration with our clients and the stakeholders on the project. That's pretty interesting. Uh, and I had a side note, and this is kind of a fun little thing that I thought I might ask, but, you know, I recognize you guys build indoor grow environments, but I'm curious, you know, does the outdoor environment play a role in designing these facilities? For instance, in Colorado, it's like notoriously dry, whereas a coastal region may provide something more of like more humidity. Uh, does this require like each kind of each build outs like a unique situation? It does. Ironically enough, a lot of people, you know, would, would assume that uh, it doesn't, you know, especially with a, a full indoor facility, but believe it or not, it does. Um, your outside conditions, both in terms of the structure that you're growing within, but the, even the mechanical systems, whether it's where they're located or actually the specifications and the selections of those equipment, of that equipment, then it is really dictated by the climate that you're that you're in. You know, one of the uh, stories from way back in the day before we actually were doing mechanical engineering was, you know, we had a client in Massachusetts and their their condensing units that they would put on top of their roof, they were purchased in California and there was a the low ambient temperature sensor that was put onto them. And so they were they were they were built to to turn off at a certain temperature. Well in Massachusetts it's it gets pretty dang cold over there, right? And so, you know, they ended up sizing and specifying this equipment for there well it was built in california intended for california and it didn't really work very well luckily we were just able to swap out a sensor um well the uh, the engineers that built it did um but it does it takes it it does actually take a pretty big part in terms of um sizing out these systems and and getting them getting them right on the first go that's pretty incredible so i'm curious um so are these controlled environments more reliable for producers when you factor in elements such as pests mold and yield issues yeah, so I always think you know I, I I you do need to factor in those issues and and we always even even so in terms of the production volumes right of of the first two years I always say even with a purpose built brand new um, facility right when I say purpose built I mean ground up not a retrofit of an existing building yeah. um, it, it's it's going to take we 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 usually say. 12 to 24 months to break in and fine tune that facility. And what that really means is understanding your systems and how they're reacting to the environments. Um, as long as your engineering and, and your design is done correctly, you should be able to expedite that break in or fine tuning period. Um, but it's still necessary, right? This is a, like I said, it's a valuable crop. And, and no matter what, if we're in a completely closed indoor environment, you're still going to be open up to to pests and disease, and and there's going to be failures in equipment, whether it's with your irrigation, fertigation system, or whether it's your mechanical system. And you need to be able to have either a redundancy in the system or b you know procedures to mitigate that risk, right? And to make sure you're cutting down on your downtime, you have a procedure to to really rectify that as quickly as possible. And so we we do need to take those all into account. I, you know, I think that um, that largely a lot of times, especially in the early days, kind of went to the wayside. It was, oh, we're growing inside, you know, just, you know, put an air, air you know, air handler unit in there, some dehumidifiers, and I mean, you're good to go, right? <laughs> yeah. um, it's just not the case. We got to, we, we need to take all those variables into account because they're still there no matter what we do. That's pretty interesting, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people's minds are blown right now and probably a lot of this is going over their head, but it's like, it just shows you that it's not just, you know, cultivating something in your backyard. It's like, there's a, there's very much a science. It's very much fine tuned. And I think even when you add on the fact that, you know, it, it takes a lot of money to grow this stuff and then you factor in compliance and, and regulations and taxes and things. And, and these growers are concerned about yields and they're concerned about, you know, pests and mold and things like that that are going to affect the yield. And so when you factor all that in together, you can see why it takes such a level of detail to, 
you know, produce a facility that is purpose built, like you said, um, that isn't retrofit. We used to actually, actually, we used to work with Amy in some ways for the Cannabis Certification Council. And so uh, we've discussed, you know, things with Amy and things have come up um, just through that avenue of like, people will go and buy these warehouses or, or retrofit an old grow and there's already different toxins or molds or something present in that present in that facility. And uh, they don't realize that until they've already built everything out and grown their first crop and then they mm-hmm. fail, they fail a test. And so uh, then at that point, you know, I'm not really sure how they rectify it other than, you know, stripping everything out and like doing a deep clean. But it really shows you that a lot of care has to be taken in these, in these facilities from the beginning uh, to produce a viable crop. It's not you know, it's it's not growing in a greenhouse or or growing outdoors. It's you have to control all these factors uh, in the environment. Yeah, and absolutely. And you know, and the, and the great thing just to touch on, you know, Amy and John is that you really need whether it's in the the investors or or your owners to to really support that uh, that vendetta, right? Because it does just as you mentioned, right? It 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 costs capital to do that. It like to meet those standards, but whether it's you know clean green certified or just mitigating uh, disease, mold, and and pests within your facilities. It takes, you know, capital to do that, right? And and you need to have, um, whether, like I said, it's your owners, or your investors behind you in that to understand the value proposition that comes with that. And mm-hmm. and Amy and, and John were, were, were at my disposal. Really, uh, there was no, uh, money wasn't an issue when it came to, you know, ensuring that it was a clean product and that it was, um, you know, it was cultivated in a responsible way. Interesting. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really important. Um, so I have a question. I know you guys have built like over 500 facilities across U.S. and you said even worldwide. So in general, like are people growing the same way where they're coming to you with like similar, you know, specs or like are people all over the board where you guys are really like fabricating things specific to clients? Like what is the general consensus? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it's really interesting. That's actually, so I'm a big numbers guy just coming from from the hoard side of things. So I love spreadsheets and record keeping. And and there definitely are some patterns that we see within the industry. You know, for example, a big one, I would say a big paradigm shift we've seen within the industry is planting planting density in your flower stages. So, um, and container size. So, so your pot container size. So, um, you know, I would say five or six years ago, or I would say on average, our flower rooms, we were seeing about four square foot of plant um, to speak in, in kind of legacy terms that would be about um you know about four plants a light that you would have there so four square foot of plant um and you would have um about a five gallon pot um, the industry is actually kind of moving away from that so over the last over the last you know like i said five or six years so what we've seen is a higher plant planting density so we're seeing people top out around three square foot per plant typically it's around two square foot per plant planting density in in the flower growth stage and a smaller pot so typically we're not seeing over a three gallon pot utilized um as that final transplant or that final container that the plant goes into um where we see i would say that that's where we see probably the most uh similarities where we see the biggest difference um i would probably say is in uh, fertilizer and irrigation regimens. So um, that's where there's much more of a broad gap between cultivators is their their use of fertilizers or, or nutrients um, and then their irrigation practices around delivering that fertilizer to the actual plant. Um, I would say that's probably where we see the biggest gap. That is pretty interesting. You know, what's the advantage to have, you know, cutting down the plant spacing? Is that so they can you know, like turn them faster and, and less to kind of manage or? 
Yeah. So it's a great question. So yeah. So that's where it comes down to, you know, kind of this holistic mentality of the urban grow really keeps. And that's, you know, where it starts with cultivation space programming, right. Is understanding, okay, well, if we, if we're, you know, doing a full harvest, not a perpetual harvest, meaning that we're cleaning out all, you know, harvesting all the plants out of a single room at once in a single event, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do we accomplish that? Right. And how can we do that in an efficient manner? And when we're dealing with plants that, you know, are, are much larger, the media type is much heavier and it's much more difficult to dispose of, or even just to carry um, those numbers, those may seem minuscule um, at first glance, but they add up year over year. Right. Um, and, and so I think it's, 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 you know, cultivation practices around understanding that, you know, smaller plants, shorter veg times, a quicker turn, but then also the labor demand around managing those, those plants, um, is a lot easier. Right. And so I think that's the shift we've seen and I'm sure you guys can relate, right. There's been a big shift, especially up in Canada right now around cost production. You know, what does it actually cost us produce this, this, this gram of dried cannabis. Right. And I think you can, you know, really easy way kind of the low-hanging fruit to drive that down is by increasing your planting density decreasing your you know resource demand in terms of media and fertilizer and then labor on the back end as well too to move those plants around that is pretty interesting do you feel like people are still focused on like high quality cannabis or do you feel like we're more focused on like profits and like turning as much as you can yeah. Oh, mercy. That is a, that's a tough one. So you'll even see this video from me back in the day at legal saying this, and I actually, I'm not going to lie. I stole it from a professor in college, but you know, he always used to say um, that you vote with your dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's so true. Right. And I think, I think what we see right now, there's been, you know, I love, love Colorado because, because we are the poster child and, and I get so much for a lack of better word, street cred around the globe from, <laughs> from cultivating here and being from Colorado. Right. Um, but it's, but it, the, the truth is that we're seeing in the numbers is like, you know, we had record sales in 2021. We did not see the pandemic really um, cease the demand that we saw, but we do see a demand for, for, low cost cannabis. Right. Um, and, and that's just the, the, that's just the honest truth about it. I wouldn't say that cultivators are pushing that in terms of, um, wanting to produce low, low cost cannabis, but they, they, they need to stay relevant and stay competitive within the market as well too. Right. So I don't think that everyone's turning to cheat to quality, but they are understanding that when people land a DIA and they jump in their Uber, it's not, I wouldn't say, you can't say it's a hundred percent of them. Those people are saying, what's the best quality. It's typically people are saying, where's the cheapest and how, you know, how quickly can I hit it on I-70? So, you know, I, I wouldn't say, I would say it's more on the fact of being competitive and, and relevant in the market. Um, but we're still, I still see some, some very, very fine quality cannabis that's produced at a very competitive price in, in the indoor market. Interesting. I mean, I totally get that. I mean, we have a hard time spending dropping like, you know, 60 bucks on an eighth. And we're like, really? You know, it's like, oh, we probably get that for like 40. So I totally get that. (laughs) Right. You know, and I see that argument come up a lot and I don't want to beat it to death too much. But, you know, I even saw something last week and and somebody kind of brought up this, you know, whole whole proposition of like whether it's profit or whether it's the the need to produce affordable cannabis versus premium. And and you really hit it on, on on the nail of like, you know, people vote with their dollar and, and really this market, it's a consumer market. It's consumer driven. Uh, you know, just like the fact that, you know, companies are having to pivot now and add in more live resin products. And now we see, you know, things even like live resin gummies, uh, that's all consumer driven demand. And so, 
you know, there's always going to be this need and somebody has to fill that need of, of producing, you know, the Coors Light of cannabis. You know, not everybody likes Coors Light. You know, I'm not a huge fan of Coors Light, but I'll drink it uh, versus, you know, going out and, and spending the money on, you know, higher, you know, a premium beer or a craft beer. Um, but, I'll, you know, I'll have both of them. And I think that's just what people have to understand over time is that there's, you know, different strokes for different folks. And, uh, you know, as yep. a consumer driven market, um, companies and, and people can't look at it on the outside of like, oh, it's a race to the bottom. I think, you know, because, you know, if everybody hits the bottom, inevitably everybody's going to be out of business. And so somebody has to find a sustainable model uh, to get, you know, uh, cannabis to people that, that want to, you know, you know, save some money and not spend their whole paycheck on, you know, an eighth or an ounce or something. So uh, that makes sense. Cool. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. I know recently Urban Grow announced the acquisition of Emerald Construction, which will allow your company to hone in on design builds for mid-sized CEA facilities. So tell us more about this acquisition and what it means for Urban Grow. Marcy, yeah, it is really exciting. It's so exciting to see just the multiple acquisitions that we've made. And, and the Emerald is is the newest and, and greatest. And it really what it does is it closes the loop for Urban Grow in terms of the services that we provide. So, you know, really Emerald is is a construction management company. Um, what that really entails is that they they're they're the ones sourcing the contractors and the trades on these projects and managing the entire construction project. And so what it allows us to do is, you know, some people may question that. Well, you know, Urban Grow says that, well, it, it, they leverage it earlier in the project. Well, we're just designing and engineering early in the project. Why would we need to talk about construction? Well, we need to talk about construction because that's a large cost of these facilities, whether it's a retrofit or a purpose-built. And so allowing us to, as an architect-led design build firm, we now have the resources of not only the architect taking, you know, the quarterback position within the entire project, but also having that in, in-house construction management so that we can look at cost of con- con- construction, cost of materials. Um, and really, I think the term that they use is a, um, um, it's maximum pricing. So rough maximum pricing. So knowing exactly what is going to be the tip top of this um, facility from a construction and building material standpoint, and they can weigh in during that design and engineering process, right? Mm -hmm. So they're another stakeholder that we can bring in early on the project so that we can drive efficiency. I think there's a uh, you know, I, I say it very delicately, but, but it's value engineering. Value engineering kind of has a weird connotation around it, um, but it can also be leveraged as a, as a really good thing on these projects. If we can take in all of these trades and all of the stakeholders on the project early in and understand, okay, well, this decision is going to have the ramifications of X, Y, and Z down the, down the road. And bringing Chris and his team out from Emerald um, really closes that loop for us and allows us to have full visibility on the project and bring it all under our one umbrella, as I like to say, our ecosystem. So now we really have this ecosystem of, of divisions within Urban Grow um, that can really leverage our experts because that's really where our that's really where our IP or intellectual property lies is is in the people that we have right um, and executing on those things. So so Chris and, and Emerald they really just close the loop on that and it's going to be really exciting to see kind of um, you know how that how that kind of parlays into uh, full turnkey projects for us. That's pretty incredible, and I could absolutely see the value of it, especially after. You know, you know the global supply chain issues we've been seeing, mm-hmm. and and just you know construction in general. I mean, that's a lot to manage, and, and so I can see you know the value for yourself and also your clients that you guys serve to have you know that big picture view versus you know having to you know weigh every stepwise and having things change down the road. You guys can really uh, give a you know a bird's eye view of probably what's going to happen over the the length of the project. So I think that's yeah. a great acquisition. You know, this is you know, and this kind of leads into my next question here, and. 
Uh, we don't talk about the global cannabis market much, but uh, you know, but is that becoming a bigger area of focus for Urban Grow, especially with this recent acquisition? So it is. I would definitely say it is. So yeah, I'm, I spend a lot of my time in Europe now. Um, I was just there for about six weeks, and, and I've been home for about two weeks, and I'm heading back uh, next week for about another six weeks. So. Oh, wow. yeah. Um, yeah, spending a lot of time over there, which I absolutely love, um, especially because I do get to spend a lot of it in uh, Holland, which is obviously the mecca of, of oh, horticulture. Yeah. And so um, so me as a horticulture nerd, I just, yeah, I, I love it. But <laughs> it's really good for us because, you know, as you guys know, it's, it's such a melting pot when it comes to compliance and regulatory restrictions or limitations, however you want to put it, um, across state lines, right, and, mm-hmm. and different markets. And, and the same is true in Europe, right? And it actually gets heightened a bit because there is the ability to to cross those borders right and export and import um which brings into the whole equation of eu gmp and gacp standards Mm -hmm. um and so really cutting our teeth and learning about um those compliance uh, driven standards about how we're going to design and select equipment, where we're going to locate that equipment, how it's going to operate within the facility. Um, and then the biggest portion of that, of, of how it's going to be commissioned, right? Um, it, because we need all of that record keeping, all of the calibration um, to be documented and then presented when they do go for EU GMP certification um, for that facility. So, so it, it does. So, it, you know, and, and as you can see with, you know, bringing on a construction management, it really gives us that visibility because, uh, you know, EU GMP is one of those things where it touches everything, not only from the floor plan layout to how people, what we refer to as process flow, people, plants, and products, how they move throughout your facility, but also down to what building materials were used. That's on the architecture side. And then how the, how the equipment, how is your HVAC system? Where is it in the facility? Is it accessible? Is it cleanable? Um, and that comes obviously comes down to the installation and, and where we locate, locate that. So, you know, I, what we're, what I'm getting at is that we're seeing that we, we believe the U S market will, will require that as well. Um, obviously Canada's already required it. Um, but it really allows us to kind of leverage our know-how, cut our teeth mm-hmm. in, in Europe and um, really leverage kind of this whole new compliance arena um, and then also bring that back to the States when the time's ready. Yeah, that's just going to make you guys better and offer, you know, yeah. better resources for here us in the U.S. Um, I mean, but I don't know anything about cannabis in Europe. So what kind of market is it like out there? Like what, what's even going on? Oh, it's so interesting. It's such an interesting market. So, you know, um, the Dutch, they, they just caved, um, about a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago. And they did, um, they're doing a pilot program is what they refer to it as. So they've released about 10 licenses. They're very strict as the Dutch usually are in terms of, um, these licenses. There was a very, it was a, it was a huge process to go through in terms of applications. Um, and then they did a lottery system and they also set, they're setting production volume quotas on it as well too. So the moment that, um, there's, there's a mild stone that you hit and from that date you need to be producing x x kilograms of, of dried material a year um and if you don't you're you're at risk of losing that license and that's because they want to make it a real market they want to make sure that if they do do this i'm, I'm not sure how much you guys know about the kind of the gray market that operates in, in amsterdam and in the netherlands right now but they want to make sure that if they do do this pilot, then everything within the Netherlands is going to be sourced from these 10 license holders or, or more if, if, if more are needed. Right. Um, so that's really interesting. You know, Italy is a really interesting one. They have one cultivation facility. It's run by the government, actually <laughs> wow. the military. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is the one that grows, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one that grows for them. Um, and so, and then, you know, the big, I would say they're big, they're kind of, they're Colorado right now in terms of leading the way um, in terms of cultivation and, and just building a market of the emerging market is Portugal. Portugal mm. um, is doing, there's tons of investment going into Portugal right now. They're very easy in terms of um, license acquisition and they have a they have pretty great environment i gotta say right um they have they have really good trades there as well too um from from a construction or, or architecture just everything there is very well suited for the market so we're very bullish on on portugal and and just kind of the ease of access that they've, that they've shown over the last couple of years very that is cool. fascinating <laughs> yeah <laughs> we got more than we bargained for yeah, with all that, that was like really <laughs> interesting you know we had no clue we're like we're noobs. We just look at Canada as like the global market <laughs> and clearly right. like that just, it's just like a piece of it. So uh, thanks for the insight. <laughs> it makes me excited for you too. Like, look how cool your journey has been. Like, you know, you started in Crested Butte and you look where you're at now. You're in the, I don't even, where do you, you told me you were at in Europe. Like, that's so cool. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. I actually, so I just, when I was just there, I went to Spanibus. So that was my oh, first go. European nice. full on cannabis show and, um, talking to some young kids, they had to be 19, maybe 20 years old. And, um, they were outside of Spanibus, you know, in the arena and they were, they were smoking their joints. I was, I had client meetings that day, so I was not smoking <laughs> at the show. I promise you. Um, and, um, I just chatting with them and they're asking me what I do. And I was kind of telling them, they're like, they, you know, they couldn't believe it. They're like, so you're telling me, like you got to grow weed legally in Colorado and now you travel like, cause the, the, the weeks before I was in Dubai, I was oh in Tel gosh. Aviv. Um, and they were like, and now you get to travel the world and talk about growing cannabis all over. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, that is amazing. And, and it, I, I hate to say it, but it kind of struck me and I was like, you know what? It is kind of amazing. Yeah. So, um, sometimes you gotta, you know, slow down and smell the, smell the flowers. Cause yeah, I'm a pretty lucky guy. And uh, for working for a company like urban grow, you know, like I said, right. Uh, can't connect the dots looking forward, only looking back. Yeah, that is so true. You know, we're extremely proud of you, Lucas. And, uh, and then also urban, uh, being a Colorado born company, urban grow is, is pretty amazing, I think. And, and we're fairly, you know, proud of, you know, these stories that come out of Colorado and you guys are helping to not just shape the industry here in Colorado, but globally, which is impressive. And, and so you guys are really, you know, giving us a good name here in Colorado and putting your experience to work. So, uh, you know, thank you for everything you do. And then also, you know, I uh, think, you know, Urban Grow for everything they do and, and recognizing, you know, what the future was going to look like to, to produce, you know, a company and kind of take charge here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate that. And yeah, I, I couldn't be more happy of being able to, you know, grow up here in this great state. I absolutely love Colorado. Just bought my just bought my first house um, uh, last year, uh, <laughs> nice. even in this crazy market, but absolutely love the state. And then, yeah, just just so lucky to be paired with, you know, uh, companies like Legal and Urban Grow. You know, Urban Grow has been, um, uh, they had a crazy idea when they contacted me over at Legal about this whole, you know, pickaxe and, and shovel uh, mentality with the cannabis industry. Um, but sometimes you got to jump off that cliff and see if the parachute works and it, it, the parachute works just fine. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's great. great. All right, Lucas, well, we have two final questions for you. Uh, this season, we are asking our guests, what is your favorite place to eat in Colorado? Yeah. So uh, I think this one's going to be pretty easy. I'm going to be a bit of a homer here in terms of Crested Butte and it's going to be 
my burrito place that I grew up with, which is Tia Taqueria. It's right on Main <laughs> Street, Elk Avenue. Um, if you're ever in Crested Butte, it's amazing. They will be closed on powder days. It's kind of the uh, the total local thing to put the closed for powder day thing. <laughs> uh, but amazing, amazing burritos. That That's is so awesome. perfect. Oh, I just had flashbacks. Elk Avenue. I forgot yeah, about Elk that. Elk Avenue is so like quintessential mountain. I think the scape. best. I <laughs> oh, remember, it's amazing. I'll have to think of the place. But literally the best steak we had was on, yeah. on Elk Avenue in Crested Butte. Yeah. I'll have to think of the place. That steakhouse. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll plug it in another episode because Crested Butte is, <laughs> Crested Butte's a shit. If you haven't been, I'm telling you, you got to go. It's so it's cool. It's so magical. Really that is amazing. <laughs> All right, Lucas, one final question. We are the Lit and Lucid podcast. So are you lit or are you lucid? Uh, after this conversation, I'd say I'm pretty lit. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Awesome. <laughs> That's fun. All right, you guys, well, check out Urban Grow online if you want to learn more. Check out Lucas. He's a really interesting guy. Uh, this was a great episode. We really appreciate everything you've offered. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. All right, you guys, with that, I'm Lit. I'm Lucid. And that's it. Laters.